Good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. And uh, first, thank you very much for your prayers for EC and me as we traveled out to Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, I was given the privilege of preaching the word at Calvary Community Church last week. It is always great uh, to be able to fellowship uh, with other believers who are like-minded, and they are worshiping God at the very same time that we are this morning. And so uh, thank you for those prayers. Please turn in a Bible to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 is our text this morning and can be found on page 32 of the Pew Bible directly in front of you. And today we are returning to our study of Genesis, which I've been doing on Wednesday nights and also when I preach on Sundays. And the last time that we studied Genesis on a Wednesday, we studied Genesis 37. Uh, verses 12 through 36, which is part of the beginning is of what is the tenth and last toldot of the book of Genesis. Genesis is one book, but it is separated into ten toldots, or ten narratives that begin with this phrase. These are the generations of. And what is interesting is that you, as you make your way through Genesis... These markings don't necessarily track with the person on whom the, the focus is at, at, at any particular time. As you read through Genesis, given his prominence, you would probably expect us to, to read, these are the generations of Abraham. Yet instead, what you read is, these are the generations of Terah, Abraham's father, in Genesis 11.24. Similarly, the narrative that focuses on Jacob, begins with, these are the generations of Isaac. And this last holdout, which began in Genesis 37-2, begins with the phrase, these are the generations of Jacob, even though the focus of this last section, which takes us to the very end of the book, is on Jacob's sons. But throughout the narratives of Genesis, there are two things that have been a constant. One has been God's grace. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, God's grace is seen in his not instantly destroying Adam and Eve after their rebellion. God's grace is seen in his favoring Noah and his family and saving them from the worldwide flood. And as we consider the prominent characters of Genesis, I would offer to you that in the life of Abraham, we see displayed to us the redeeming grace of God. The grace of God which took Abraham from his idolatry, took him out of his family's traditions of serving other gods, and separated him and his family unto God, redeeming him out of that former life. In the life of Jacob, I would say that we see something of God's refining grace. The grace of God which progressively changes the heart of one who formerly was a schemer, who formerly was a self-reliant man, to one who at the end of his life recognizes his need for God. And in this last part of Genesis, I would offer to you that what we see displayed to us is God's prevailing grace. His grace that triumphs over difficulties, triumphs over circumstances, and even triumphs over man's pervasive unrighteousness. And if there is one other constant throughout the book of Genesis, I would offer to you that man's pervasive unrighteousness is that other constant. From Cain's murder of his brother Abel and only the second generation after Adam and Eve, to God's rendering judgment upon the world through the worldwide flood and his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that man's righteousness, unrighteousness, is at the very core of his being. In today's passage, which takes place over a, over a 20 plus year period, plunges us even deeper into the sin-filled heart of man and shows us how vile the actions can be that spring from that sin-filled heart. And while some might see this passage today as an interruption to the Joseph narrative, if you 
read through Genesis, you can easily go from Genesis 36 to Genesis 39 and seemingly not miss a beat. Or perhaps some might only see this passage as a contrast between the unrighteousness of Judah and the righteousness, or the virtue, I should say, of Joseph in Genesis 39. This chapter certainly demonstrates the saying that the deep background upon which a diamond is placed shows all the more the beauty of that diamond. As we look today, the deep backdrop of man's sin will cause God's grace to shine all the more brightly and should cause us to marvel at the power of the prevailing grace of our God, not only in the life of Judah, but in our lives as well. So with that as introduction, let us read the beginning of Genesis 38. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Let us pray. Our God and Father, your word tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Lord, as we approach your word, we pray that you would humble our hearts and cause us to hear what your spirit speaks to us this day for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So in our passage this morning, we will see that God's grace prevails over an unholy marriage which produces unrighteous offspring. God's grace prevails over an unfulfilled promise which produces an unrighteous response. That God's grace prevails over an unexpected exposure which produces a declaration of unrighteousness. And finally, that God's grace prevails over an uncertain future resulting from an unusual birth. First, an unholy marriage which produces unrighteous offspring. The passage starts with, it happened at that time. Placing the events that we will read of in this chapter after what we read in verses 12 through 36 of Genesis 37. We remember Joseph's brothers, who were full of hatred for him because he was the favorite son of Jacob, conspired to kill him when he came to check on their well-being when they were at Dothan. Instead of killing him immediately, they took the advice of their brother Reuben. They instead stripped him of this richly ornamented tunic that he had and threw him in a cistern, not necessarily declaring that they were going to leave him there or to kill him, but they threw him in a cistern. They sat down to eat. And we're told that while they're eating, some traders who were on this major trade route are passing by. And at that time, Judah comes up with the idea, instead of killing him, what, what profit is it, is, is it for us to, to kill him? Why don't we sell him? Let's sell our brother to these traders. And so they pull him up from the cistern. They they let the traders buy their brother for the price of a typical slave at that point in time. And then they take the tunic that their father had given to Joseph. 
They tear it up and dip it in, in the blood of a, of a goat. And they send it to their father. And they say these words in Genesis 37, 32. This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And Jacob, believing that his son Joseph is dead, goes into a great state of mourning. Mourning that he declares would take him to the grave. So imagine what life would have been like in Judah's home after that. You have a father who's in mourning at the death of his son. And in many ways, he's declaring that even though dead, Joseph is still his favorite son. Because he has other children that are there, and yet he he agonizes over Joseph's death. And imagine the brothers who continued to live with the continual thought of all that they had done to their brothers, perhaps as they'll declare later on in the Genesis narrative of, of his calling out for his life from the cistern. And so seemingly, Judah wants to get away from it all. We read here that he departs from his family and separates himself from the covenant people of God. And this is significant because Judah is now the heir apparent of the family. If you remember, Reuben, the firstborn, has disqualified himself for leadership because he went into his father's concubine and slept with her, trying to assert his leadership over the family. Simeon and Levi, the second and thirdborn, have disqualified themselves because they took revenge and avenged the violation of their sister Dinah in the city of Shechem, and killed all of the men. And so we read here that Judah went down. This was not simply just his geographic direction, because he truly did go down from from the highlands to the lowlands. You'll see in this passage that he was going down spiritually as well. First, we're told that he becomes the friend of an Adulamite, a Canaanite named Hira. And after befriending this Canaanite, we next see him marrying a Canaanite. We're told that she was the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. And in verse 2, we see this quick succession of phrases that he saw her, he took her, and went into her. And then that she began to bear children, which likely marks the fact that their marriage was mostly based on the physical attraction. We're told nothing of her character. We're told nothing of their courtship, and we see that we're not even told her name. That's significant. And perhaps shedding further light on the dynamics of the marriage, in verses 3 through 5, we see that Judah names the firstborn Ur. But the names of the other two sons are left to his wife, showing the absentee fatherism that we saw in Jacob's life, in the births of his children, as the women took the lead in giving them names. And for the birth of his last son, he was not even there. We're told that he was in a town called Kezib. It's interesting that this town's name, Kezib, means false or deception, which has played a significant part and will play a significant part in our narrative. The forbidden nature of marriage to a Canaanite was well known to Judah. Think of the great effort that Abraham took in ensuring that his son Isaac would not marry a Canaanite. He sent in Genesis 24 a servant to Mesopotamia to find a wife for him. Think of Rebekah's words and, uh, to Isaac in Genesis 27:46 when she said this about Jacob perhaps marrying a Hittite woman or a Canaanite woman. He, she said, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And then we hear the very words of Jacob's sons as they responded to Hamor and his son Shechem's request for Dinah's hand in marriage. In Genesis 34, they say this in verse 13. It says, says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. In 14, they said to them, we cannot do this thing. 
to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Judah knew better. He knew the separation that was to exist between his family and those of the surrounding people, that this holiness, that this setting apart unto God of his family was something that was vitally important and was a central part of their history. And so this whole unholy marriage endangered that separation and produced unrighteous offspring. We're not told anything of the son's upbringing, but in the course of time, Judah takes a wife for his son Ur. Her name is Tamar, and she is likely a Canaanite woman. And we read of Ur, this dubious distinction of being the first person named in all of Scripture of whom God took the life of. Yes, God had destroyed the world with the worldwide flood. He had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But here we see a specific person named as being so wicked that God took his life. The death of Ur, Judah instructs his second oldest son, Onan, to fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law, which verse 8 tells us is the raising up of offspring for his dead brother. This is called leveret marriage. And while this custom is codified in the law, as we read in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, this custom was widely practiced throughout Near Eastern culture. We see that perhaps this practice even continued into Jesus' day. Remember when the Sadducees approached Jesus and asked him who the wife of a woman would be if she married uh, the seven brothers of the same family, and they were all uh, without children when they died. I would say for a more in-depth look at Leveret Marriage, um, Pastor Steve preached on Deuteronomy 25 a few years ago. And so if you want to understand more, because I'm only giving a summary here, I would certainly commend that sermon to you. But taken from the Latin word levere, this means a husband's brother or brother-in-law. A married man died without children was basically one who died without offspring who would carry on his name. And so in order for that family to receive the inheritance that was due to him, an heir needed to be produced. And on a practical level, think that there were no welfare programs or government programs to support widows at that time. And so these children would be the support for that widow. Think of Jesus' compassion when he raised the dead only son of the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7. And while there were outs for the brother-in-law who didn't want to perform this duty, we see Judah instructing his next son to take on this duty. Verse 9 tells us that Onan knew that the children born from This duty would not be his. And Richard Belcher in his Genesis commentary says this. The son that would result from the union of Tamar and Onan would carry on the name of Ur and receive his inheritance. If such a son is not produced, then Onan and Shelah would receive more inheritance. Onan understands this and so refuses to complete the act of sexual union. So in this act, Onan is not only betraying his brother, but he's abusing Tamar by simply using her for his own sexual gratification. And not only is he abusing her, but he is putting her to an open shame in the community. Think of this. The community knows that her husband's died. They know that she has entered into a leveret marriage with Onan. And yet, from this marriage, no children are coming. So think of this. A dead husband and no children. What is wrong with her? Think of the open shame for this young woman. And so while what Onan was doing to prevent the conception of children was being done privately and to the unawares of those in public, God knew, as he knows all. And he put him to death. 
And so as we look at this scene, we see Ur dead. We see Onan dead. We see these unrighteous offspring who were the result of this unholy marriage. And as we view this family and think of how this applies to us, what should come to mind is the command in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, which says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Single people, you resolved in your mind and in your heart that you will not marry an unbeliever. Because of what might seem to be the limited availability of Christian singles around you. Are you considering marrying an unbeliever? We're commanded by God not to unequally yoke ourselves to an unbeliever. While there are many Christians who go into such marriages thinking that they'll be the one to win their spouse to Christ, so often the opposite takes place. So often the unbeliever draws that Christian away from Christ. And certainly if you are here and you are a believer and became a believer after you were married and your spouse is an unbeliever, I'm not saying to leave, leave your spouse. No, not at all. Remain with them. But these verses have a wider application to all of us. Before he married his Canaanite wife, what did Judah do? First, he separated himself from his family. We are warned not to do so in Hebrews 10.25 when we're told not to neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And after separating himself from his family, from the people of God, what did Judah do? He befriended a Canaanite. And so often, isn't that the path of the one who first separates themselves from the church? What do they do? They befriend the world. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And as we hear even more directly in James 4.4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. May it not be so with us. May God help us to resolve not to marry an unbeliever for those of you who are in that position. And may God help all of us to stay connected to the body of Christ, and to not befriend the world to the injury of our soul. This is what Judah did. With the death of the unrighteous offspring who were raised up from this unholy marriage, as the context, we next see that God's grace must prevail over an unfulfilled promise, which produces an unrighteous response. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah's words indicate that he knew the duty of the brother-in-law. The next brother-in-law fell to Shelah. And he says that it is now, or he knows that it's his responsibility, Shelah's responsibility to raise up children for his dead brother by Tamar. He instructs Tamar to return to her father's house to live as a widow. And as scriptures record his words, scripture also records his thought. He first had the excuse of Shayla not being old enough to marry at that point in time. But we're also told that he was operating from fear. Fear that the same thing that happened to Ur, to Onan, would happen to Shelah, and he would be left without an heir. And so we see here that he was blind to the wickedness of his son. 
And so he tells Tamar to go to her father's house and to live there as a widow. And Bruce Waltke states this in his commentary. Judah, with his dignity and status, is expected to care for a defenseless widow. He violates his daughter-in-law by shirking his responsibilities, denying her right to well-being and status in the community, and shifting her problems unto others. Nevertheless, he still retains authority over her. So Judah confines Tamar to her father's house, viewing her father's house as a more advantageous for him to bide his time. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Temnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. After some time, Judah's wife, wife dies as well. Excuse me. And after fully mourning his wife's death, told that he and his friends go up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. So this tells us that indeed Judah was a man of means. To have sheep and sheep shearers meant that he had wealth, that he had belongings. And this time of sheep shearing was not only about cutting the wool off of sheep. This time of sheep shearing was often a festival. It was marked by feasting and carousing. And so Tamar hears this. Imagine, she is remaining in her father's house as a widow all this time. She understands that Judah's wife has died, that he has mourned her. But now he's going up to a celebration. All the time knowing that Shela has reached an age when he can be given to her. And so all this time, Judah's promise to give Tamar to Shelah remains unfulfilled. Scripture tells us that he was operating from fear. But once again, we see Tamar's mistreatment by his family. And knowing something of Judah's character, Tamar devises a trap we read beginning in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. As Judah so easily engages a woman that he thinks is a prostitute, we see that he's gone from befriending a Canaanite to marrying a Canaanite to now fully living as a Canaanite. But note that Moses emphasizes that during this interaction, Judah did not know that this was his daughter-in-law. Verse, first, verse 15 says that he thought she was a prostitute. And verse 16 says, For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, seeking to make clear that Judah was not knowingly participating in incest. So as the text walks us through the terms of their arrangement, Judah agrees to send a goat at a later point in time as payment, because he wouldn't have brought a goat with him to go to a sheep shearer's. He was simply going to see his sheep's wool cut and, and to party, basically. To guarantee that he would indeed send that goat, Tamar asks for a pledge. An item or items that would be left with her, saying that this goat will indeed be sent at a different point in time in the future. Tamar requests his signet, 
his cord, and his staff. Of the signet and cord, Walkie writes, the small ornamented cylinder seal made of stone or metal or worn on a cord around the neck was the insignia of a prominent man. When it was rolled across soft clay, such as the legitimating clay seal on a document, the resulting impression identified the owner and or sender of the object. And of the staff, he writes, this symbol of authority had his mark of ownership etched on top of it. Scepter heads incised with names have been found throughout the ancient Near East. And so if we were to make a modern-day equivalent of what Judah has given to Tamar's pledge, he's given her his wallet with his driver's license, his credit cards, his social security card, all significant and un, 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 just no way that he would be able to say, this isn't mine. We're told that from this one encounter, Tamar conceives and returns to her father's house and returns to her widow's garments. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take, the, take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Judah sends the goat by his friend Hira. And so we see Judah's willingness to fulfill his promise to a prostitute while his promise to his very daughter-in-law remains unfulfilled, showing the pervasiveness of the sin in his heart. Judah is also focused on retrieving his personal effects so that any evidence of this incident can be eliminated. Note that the goat wasn't described as payment in verse 20. We're told that the goat was sent to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. However, Hira's search proves unsuccessful. And he reports back to Judah. Instead of pressing on with this search, Judah tells him, just let her keep the things. Because he did not want to put himself to an open scorn. Imagine this friend of his going around searching for a prostitute that he can give this goat as payment to. Not something that you would want widely known. And what a sordid incident this is. And it's hard to see anything of value. But consider this of Tamar. During all this time that Shelah is growing up, and as Judah's promise to her remained unfulfilled, Tamar remained a widow at her father's house. She watched for, I don't know, it could be year after year, but she remained faithful to this family despite their mistreatment of her. As she disguised, disguised herself to trap Judah, she was not looking to engage with just anyone she saw on the roadside, but her focus was on entrapping Judah. And while in no way is her deception of Judah right, in her undertaking this plot, what we see here is that she was more concerned about raising up offspring for Judah's family than Judah himself. Ian Dugod states it in this way. In many ways... Tamar was an innocent victim of the sins of Judah and his family. Given the cultural convention of the time, she may not even have had a say in whether she wanted to join this family. The trap she laid for Judah was about her getting justice and righting a wrong. Yet, at the same time, her trap was highly risky, not to mention highly questionable ethically, morally, and legally. She was intentionally engaging in prostitution to entrap Judah. Tamar set out to right a wrong, but she did it in a profoundly disturbing way. So the question comes to us. When we are wronged, how do we respond? 
Is our response to the evil that is done against us to respond in kind and produce more evil? Or to obey what we've recently studied in Romans 14, verse 14 says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then in verse 17 we read, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Tamar certainly didn't do this. Instead, Tamar's unrighteous response was due to Judah's unrighteousness and not keeping the promise that he had made to her. And why was his promise even necessary? Because of the unrighteousness of his sons who were put to death. Do you see how pervasive the sin runs? And while Judah sought to conceal his unrighteousness by giving up the search for the prostitute when Hira could not find her, God would not let it be so. And next, we see an unexpected exposure, which produces a declaration of unrighteousness. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Three months pass. And Judah is told, as the ESV note indicates, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has committed prostitution. Moreover, she is pregnant by prostitution. And note the swiftness of Judah's pronouncement of her sentence and the severity of that sentence for the very sin that he committed. Note his hypocrisy. Hypocrisy that God would not allow to stand and hypocrisy that would be exposed as the drama of the scene increases. Look at verse 25. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. See this in your mind's eye. Tamar is being brought out to be executed for her sin. And as she's being brought out, she sends the signet, the cord, and the staff, saying to Judah, please identify. In other words, please examine these because they belong to the man by whom I am pregnant. Do these words sound familiar to you? If they don't sound familiar to you, Perhaps they sounded familiar to Judah because these are the same words spoken to Jacob. Joseph's torn, blood-stained robe was presented to Jacob in Genesis 37-32. These we have found, or this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. In this moment, Judah is reaping what he has sown. And in this moment of being confronted with his sin, think of Judah's options. He could easily say, I have no idea how she got those. Clearly, she stole those from me, or she's lying. But in showing that this is a turning point in Judah's life, we read in verse 26, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Or alternately, she is righteous, not I. Declaring his guilt and exonerating Tamar. And as we end this section of the passage, we're told, and he did not know her again. Once again, emphasizing that Judah was not consciously guilty of incest. And even though Judah admits his guilt, It was still a pregnancy. 
As we close out the passage, we see an uncertain future resulting from an unusual birth. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, and there were twins in there were twins in her room. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. Once again, we see the birth of twins. From the wording in verse 27, it seems that Tamar was perhaps unaware that she was carrying twins. And I'm pretty sure that she was not expecting the birth that occurred. We see this unusual birth where once again we see the younger placing himself ahead of the older. Zerah, the one who, who has the scarlet thread placed on his hand, was thought to be the first. But Perez, which means to breach or to break through, comes out first. But imagine the uncertainty of the future that these twins could have. They were born from an incestuous encounter into a family that was full of deception, hatred, and favoritism. They were born into a family divided, and so one might think that nothing good could or would ever come from this situation. And if the narrative ended right here, there would understandably be a great sense of hopelessness. But God. But God. Just as this episode is ending, is about the same time that Joseph's brothers will begin to come face to face with Joseph who has come to rule in Egypt. And what was the sprout of repentance and change in Judah that we see at the end of this passage will grow as we will see Judah change from a hard-hearted, selfish man to one who cares for his father as he offers himself as surety for Benjamin's return in Genesis 43, who understands his father's grief at the prospect of losing his son and who offers himself in place of Benjamin when it seems that Benjamin is about to be detained in Egypt in Genesis 44, all showing God's prevailing grace, triumphing even the hardest of hearts. And as we look forward in redemptive history, we see God's prevailing grace prevailing over the pervasive unrighteousness of this passage when we read in Jacob's words to Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. These are great promises of a glorious future for his descendants. Further in redemptive history we read in Ruth 4 verses 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. This is one of the twins. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And even on this Palm Sunday, one might approach this passage and say, how Does this passage relate to Palm Sunday? Well, no. That the one who was entering Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday has this as his lineage. 
Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So this morning's passage isn't an interruption to the Joseph narrative. And it's not simply, although we will see the contrast between Judah's unrighteousness and the virtue of Joseph in chapter 39. This morning's passage is continuing to trace the often crooked line laced with human sin that points us to the coming promised Messiah. For the incarnation of Christ manifested God's prevailing grace over the pervasive unrighteousness that we studied in this passage. And even more, Christ's coming in the flesh displayed and accomplished God's prevailing grace over the pervasive unrighteousness of all mankind. For while those who were crying out Hosanna were looking for Christ to be the triumphant king who would overthrow the Roman occupiers, Christ was coming into Jerusalem, set on accomplishing God's plan for the redemption of his people by going to the cross and receiving God's just wrath against sin. And sin, this pervasive unrighteousness which rules and reigns in the human heart, is not isolated to this passage or to Jacob's family, but exists in all mankind. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And we saw death rendered on Ur and rendered on Onan because of their wickedness. To each one who does not turn from their sin, forsake their sin and turn to Christ. Not only is there physical death, but there is eternal death coming as well. This is an eternal conscious punishment for sin that will be rendered by a just and holy God upon those who continue in rebellion against him. But God sent Christ to die for sinners. And Christ Christ took upon himself the punishment that I deserve, that we all deserved. And not because of anything that I've done did Christ die. But as Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, In Christ Jesus. Salvation in Christ is available today. If you do not know him, turn to him and be saved. And be brought out of your death in trespasses and sins. And into eternal life in Christ. For the Christian, we saw Judah's spiritual blindness. And his attempt to hide his sin. But God would not allow him to continue on in his hypocrisy. And we see the work of God in Judah's heart when he came to see his sin and declared, She is righteous, not I. There were no excuses. There was no hiding. There was an owning of his sin. And from that point, God began the process of changing Judah into the leader of his family that he had destined him to be. And displaying his prevailing grace. And that it would be from Judah and not Joseph from whom Messiah would come. And God does not want us to hide our sin either. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And we're promised in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we do sin, we don't have to go into hiding. And in fact, we can modify Judah's statement in verse 26 by pointing to Christ and saying, He is righteous, not I. He is righteous, 
not I. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what is even more amazing about the prevailing grace of God is that Christ is not only the perfectly righteous one, but he gives his perfect righteousness to us. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we in Christ might become the righteousness of God. The Lord has shown to us his redeeming grace and saving us, separating us from the world, is showing us his refining grace, progressing, progressively making us more like Christ. And as we consider this passage in its totality, may we be continually reminded of his prevailing grace, his grace that has triumphed over our pervasive unrighteousness our past, our present, and our future sins. His prevailing grace that will bring us to the expected end that he has for us, which is full conformity to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all to the glory of his great name. Let us pray. Our God and Father, oh, how we thank you for the grace that you have shown to us. We who were once your enemies, we who rebelled against your holy law, Lord, in sending the Lord Jesus Christ, you fulfilled your promise. And as we see in Christ's coming in the flesh, his dying upon the cross, receiving the just penalty for our sins, and being raised on the third day, we see your grace triumphing over sin, hell, and the grave. Help us, Father, to be faithful in seeking you, seeking to continue to be strengthened by your grace. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we go through this world to be found declaring your gospel, this news of your great grace to a lost and dying world. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and lives, to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.